This morning, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Mark Birch to you. Mark is an old friend, and I mean that in every way. <laughs> Who's older? 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I've known Mark for a lot of years, and uh, uh, now Mark serves as the North American Director for the C2C Network. Uh, C2C is a Mennonite Brethren-based church planting network. Uh, if you didn't know, we're a Mennonite Brethren church. And so this is part of our family, uh, and uh, they serve many denominations. And Mark, as I said, is the North American director, has been serving in that role for numerous years. And, uh, and he's been a friend of Willingdon. He's preached here numerous times over the years, so we're excited to have Mark uh, back with us again as we continue in our series, Live with the End in Mind. So let me pray for you, Mark. Lord, I thank you that uh, you brought Mark here this morning. I thank you for the journey you've had him on over the years, drawing him to yourself and the ministry that he's been a part of as a pastor and as a leader. And I thank you for the message that you placed in his heart for us today. I pray that we would open up our hearts and minds for the things that you want to teach us and the things you want us to take away from here in in terms of thoughts and actions uh, into this week. So we pray your blessing on this message and on Mark for giving it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I often remind my friend Willie that he is actually much older than me, at, you know, at least, at least by a year or so, so. And I know he was wandering aimlessly in ministry, and then he finally found a church named Willieden that he could come to, so thank you for welcoming Willie to Willieden. I also understand he's asked the board to rename this facility the Willie Dome, so that'll be interesting to come to worship at the Willie Dome. But anyway, welcome... Welcome here. It's always a privilege to be at Willingdon and to be at a partner church. And I, I typically come in the middle of a series and they give me a text and say, we're, we're in a particular series. Can you take this text and preach on it? That's true today. Our text is going to be from 2 Corinthians 8. So you can have your Bibles, just stick your thumb there. We're going to read there in a little bit. But also this time to talk a little bit about the partnership that you as a church have had with uh, C2C Network and continues to be a partnership. Some of you may not even know that you partner in church planting all across North America as you partner with this Mennonite Brethren-based church planting network, but as Willie said, we're currently serving about 31 denominations across Canada, but the largest number of those are still Mennonite Brethren planters, and if you're interested in that, if you are a prayer, if you are interested in missionaries that are planting churches here in North America, I'd encourage you to pick up, I brought one of these I brought a stack of these booklets along. They're out of the Welcome Center. Everything in this book are the Mennonite Brethren Planters. So there's actually 47 planting couples and apprentices pictured in here. There's another new one that should be in here, but they came through assessment just a little bit late, who you, many of you would know, Jake and Maisie Lefebvre, who actually served on the staff here at Willingdon a number of years ago, have gone on now to serve at Christ City Church, just came through assessment and are going to be entering into apprenticeship in the, in the coming months, going into their fundraising phase and all of that. But this is all about Mennonite Brethren Church Planning and would love to pick, have you pick that up and pray with us and for us. And those are at the Welcome Center. C2C takes its name from Psalm 72, verse 8, that the Founding Fathers chose as the motto for Canada that he would have dominion from sea to sea. And it's our hope and prayer that King Jesus would indeed have dominion, that we would see something new in our day that has never, ever happened in North American history, that a sweeping of the Spirit from coast to coast, and that men and women would come to the end of themselves and realize that life as we see it and know it is not working, that our society increasingly is broken, that families are suffering, and that there has to be an answer greater than our own human ingenuity, and that we would come to faith in Jesus. And that's really our hope and prayer. 
Over the years, as I mentioned, Willingdon has been a huge supporter and partner with C2C, specifically partnering with local churches here in the Vancouver area to provide. You've sent a lot of people. You have sent financial resources. You have sent your prayers. And uh, I want to remind you, though, however, that this church is actually a church plant. And maybe you forget to think about that. 58 years ago, this church wasn't here. And a group of leaders went out. If you go to the uh, website for the Center of Mennonite Brethren Studies, you will find this. There's a longer story, but a portion of it says this. Willingdon Church in Burnaby, B.C., originally known as the Willingdon Mennonite Brethren Church, began in 1960. The Vancouver Mennonite Brethren Church was overcrowded and supported the building of a new 450-seat church, which used to stand where the gymnasium is now, on Willingdon Avenue. It was finished in 1961. 116 members of the Vancouver Church became the core group for the Willingdon Church. Now, did you know that those 116 people didn't speak English? Do you know what they spoke? Well, they spoke some English, but you know what their mother tongue was? They chose, however, to very early on say, we've got to give up our own comfort zone and stop worshiping in our mother tongue, German, in order to reach the city of Burnaby. Years later, as Burnaby began to receive people from all around the world, the church strategically made the decision, if we are going to speak the languages that are coming to us, we need to translate our messages. And so even as you walked in the doors today, you could get a headset, and the message and the service is translated into the mother tongue of, I don't know even the number of languages, 10 or 11 or 12 languages that are accessible for the community. What a great and awesome idea. And I don't know all the history, and I'm sure I'll miss some, but what I do know is I rolled back through the Rolodex inside my brain. I know that Willingdon Church over the years has supported Cornerstone Church in Surrey and Hyde Creek Church out in Port Coquitlam, Westside Church in downtown Vancouver, Reality Church in East Vancouver, Christ City Church in South Vancouver, Westside Church on the North Shore, North Vancouver, Artisan Church downtown Vancouver, Crossridge Church out in Surrey, and if you go back far enough, 30 years ago, Maple Ridge. Community Church with Ed and Helen Ann Gertson. And there's probably others that I don't know about, but those are the ones that came to my mind as I think through the partnerships that you've sent out. In fact, this week I was down in California and I was with a church, a church planter, 25 years old, but uh, the church is, but he grew up in this church and was sent out, Fred Leonard, to be a church planter. And so there's a great history and a partnership, and we just want to say thank you. And we're talking about generosity, and it has to do with individual, personal generosity, responding to the grace of God in our lives, and also corporately. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 15 is my text. And in light of the time that we've got, I'm just going to read the first nine verses, and you can scan through the rest. But the first nine verses read this way, 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord And then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he would complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, 
but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now you can scan through the rest of that, and typically I know the style around Willingdon would be to walk verse by verse and word by word through that, and to pull out the truths. And what I want to do today, a little bit different, is I want to just really quickly run through this text and and pull out some, some key phrases, and then I want to dig into some principles that are rooted here. And as you're scanning through that text, you will see that word grace appears over and over and over again. It is grace and generous living as a response to, the God, to God's grace. In verse 1, it says, the Macedonians have received the gift of God's grace. And he begins there by saying, our generous lives flow from God's grace. In verse 2, God's grace has enabled generosity to flow, even if you're reading it, during a severe time of trial. So being generous, being gracious has nothing to do with having excess or being wealthy because you can be a very poor person and be an incredibly generous person. On the other end of the spectrum, you can be fabulously wealthy and be a stingy miser. Do you know that that's true? Generosity has nothing to do with whether you have much or little. It's an attitude of the heart. Grace empowers us, verse 3 and 4 says, to give beyond our means. Well, what does that mean? Well, we're going to come back to that a little bit later in the service, but what I think it really means is the Lord takes our little lives and we give them to him and we lay them down and he multiplies them. He allows us to give beyond what we are personally able to give. Grace, verse 5, begins first in that we give ourselves to the Lord. That's where generous living begins. It's not about your time and your talents, your money, your giving things away. It's first giving your life to the Lord Jesus. Verse 6 and 7, he basically says, Titus is coming to you to remind you you made a promise. And the context here is the church at Jerusalem was in a hard time. There was a famine going on. They had special needs. And the church in the early days were sending offerings back to the mothership and saying, hey, we care for you. And so we want to help you in your time of needs and a time of relief. And later on, maybe we're going to face some hard times and you can send some gifts our way. Verse 7, as you excel in all these other areas... Excel in this grace, there's that word again, this grace of giving. I like verse 8 and 9 because it says this isn't a command. This isn't a heavy stick. This isn't a guilt trip message. This is a response to the love of God because verse 9, we see that he who was rich, Jesus, became poor on our behalf. And our responding to that love creates a generous spirit. So that's the quick run through with the text. And I want to draw some principles out of it. A lot of people, I think, when they hear the word generosity, think immediately that we're talking about money. And certainly, generosity does affect our finances, but generous living is far more than just your money. And I want to challenge that, that if you, like me, tend to think first and foremost about money, when you hear the word generosity, it reveals a narrow understanding of the concept of generous living. The word generous is an adjective. It describes things. Uh, I looked it up on dictionary.com, and I got these kind of definitions. To be liberal in giving or in sharing, to be unselfish. Free from meanness or smallness of mind and character. You can literally say that person has a generous character. It characterizes their life. It also can refer to size. Large, abundant, ample. This is very important when serving dessert. I will take a generous slice of pie, please. 
and server, are there free refills on this dessert? Sometimes the best way to understand a word is to look at its opposites, at its antonyms. So if you say, I'm not so much, I'm a generous person, look at the opposites, the antonyms, selfish, mean, meager, stinginess, pettiness, barrenness. Do you like any of those words? We tend to not like those words. And with those definitions in mind, what might it look like for you and me to be known as generous people? Because Paul was encouraging people in the first century who the majority of them were brand new Christians. The majority of them were just baby Christians, just getting their legs in the faith and getting their feet down and roots down into the word of God. And he was teaching them how to respond to this generous God that they had. Just a sidebar before we go much further, I, I, I need to remind you that sometimes people come into a series like this and they might check out and go, oh, this isn't for me because I don't have any extra money laying around. This is for rich people. This is for people who have extra money left over. It's not for me. I, I need to tell you this. I need to challenge you this. If you're in this room, I think that's most of you, if you're in this room, you are fabulously wealthy. I need to tell you that. By the world standards, if you're sitting in North America, you are fabulously wealthy. Do you know that there's a billion people on the planet that live on less than $1 per day? There's another billion people on the planet that live on less than $2 per day. It's tax season. Happiness. <laughs> you probably have all filled out your forms. If your income tax this year, you claimed more than $10,000 in income... Did you know that you are wealthier than 80% of the world's population? If you claimed more than $50,000 in income, which is probably many of you, do you know that you're wealthier than 99% of the world's peoples? We are fabulously wealthy. If we can't learn to be generous in North America, God help us. So this message is for all of us. All of us need to understand the concept of generous living. I want to just roll you through three or four principles. Number one, if you're taking notes, there's a generous person inside every single one of us. There is a generous person inside every single one of you. And you might be surprised at that statement because you go, how arrogant of you, pastor. You don't know me. How can you make a statement like that about my life? And you might be thinking, and you don't know my husband. And you don't know my wife. You don't know my stingy neighbor. How can you make a statement that there's a generous person inside every human? My mother-in-law is here. And she makes Ebenezer Scrooge look like Mother Teresa. How can you say there's a generous person inside every man and woman on the planet? And I, I can say it because the Bible says it. You go, where does the Bible say that? The Bible tells us this in Genesis 1.27 when it says God was creating the world and he made them male and female and that he created them in the image of God. In the image of God. In other words, stamped into the human DNA, the spiritual DNA of every man and woman and boy and girl on the planet are the family traits of our Heavenly Father. And God is a good God, a generous God, a kind God, a gracious God. And if we are His children made in His image, then the family DNA runs in our veins. And I get it that it might be deeply marred by sin, 
And it may be buried under layer after layer after layer of brokenness and hurt and bitterness, our sin and other people's sin. But if we mine down deep enough into the human heart, you will find within every person on the planet this divine imprint that at the core of who you are, you are an image bearer. You are made in the image of God. And so if God is a generous God, there has to be a generous person inside of you. And I think I can illustrate it this way. I think all of you have had this experience. There's that special person in your life, whether it's a a child or a grandchild or your sweetheart or a friend or a neighbor, and a special occasion is coming up and you get the chance to buy them a gift. And you think this thing through, what would be a gift that they would like to have? And you go out and you take your time and you purchase that special gift and you wrap it up specially and you put a bow on it and you put it in front of them. And what are you waiting for? You're waiting for them to open it and to see the boom, the light goes on and go, Whoa, I knew it. I knew you would love this gift. Have you been there? I know you've been there where you're going. This is amazing. It's why they say giving is more blessed than receiving because you get the joy. You get so much multiplied joy because you might think about this thing for weeks. And you're anticipating, I know when they open it. In fact, at Christmas, I love it because in our family anyway, we put them out like two weeks ahead of time. Now, my wife's family didn't do it. They do it wrong. But anyway, you set it out there for like two weeks and you're anticipating and you know that there's this anticipation, this very special gift. There's a generous person inside you. You delight in seeing someone else's eyes light up when you give to them. Number two, if you're taking notes, the very essence of the gospel is a gospel of generosity. I need to say it again because this is the most important point of the message. The very essence of the gospel we preach and sing about is a gospel of generosity. And we're going to camp here because the gospel tells us that we've been separated from our creator because of our sin. And you go, well, you might, wait a minute, wait a minute. How does that go with what you just said? That I'm a generous person. I'm created in the image of God. It makes it sound like I'm this wonderful person. Well, that is true. However, That image, that imago Dei, that image of God was broken and is broken in our ongoing rebellion and our chosen alienation against the Father. And we've been cut off from the source of life itself and left to ourselves, we tend to go from bad to worse, guaranteed. Without the interruption of God in our life, without the awakening of our spirit, without the eyes of our heart being enlightened by the spirit of God, we tend not to get better and better, but to get worse and worse. We live with an inborn tendency to do wrong, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, Lord, keep my heart soft towards you. The most graphic illustration, I think any of you who have had children, grandchildren, you know this. You bring those beautiful little children home from the maternity ward, just about the size of a football. They fit right here. And they are so beautiful, and they are so pure, and they are so innocent, just like that voice back there. They are so lovely. But within a few months, that little child has learned to curl their upper lip and to clench their fist and to scream at the top of their lungs until they get their way. They really believe they are the center of the universe. And bewildered, first-time parents, blurry-eyed at three in the morning, looking at one another and thinking, where did this terrorist come from? (laughs) Obviously from your side of the family. (laughs) Why is it that we don't have to teach our children to lie to us? Why is it we don't have to teach them to say no and to fight and to raise their fist? 
because there's something within us. And the bad news is we're separated from God and it gets worse. We can't find our way back. That's critical. We've been separated from God and there's nothing we can do to earn his approval. And this is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. This is absolutely critical. If you don't hear anything else, you need to hear this. What is it that separates Christianity from the other world religions? The other major, major, there's eight major faith streams in the world. Every single one of them, if you ask them, what do I do to get right with God? They give you the list. Here it is. You pray, you serve, you give, you grovel, you read the holy book, you repeat, pray, serve, give, grovel. The eightfold path of Buddhism, you are trying to get rid of all's life desire and finally you're absorbed into the nirvana of the universe. The five pillars of Islam, you give, you serve, you make a pilgrimage to Mecca, on and on it goes. But here's the list. If you do these things and do them faithfully and keep doing them, maybe Allah will be pleased with you, but you never quite know. Christianity is the only religion that tells you, how do I get things right with God? And the answer is this, you can't. That's shocking. It's what our Bible tells us. If you want to get right with God, you can't do it. This is critical. How is that good news? The good news is this, there's one who has already done it for you. And his name is Jesus. He lived the sinless life that you and I could never, ever live. And he went to Calvary and he died the death that we should have died. And then he was buried in the tomb. But three days later, he conquered sin and death and the grave and the fear and all the powers of evil. He rose, Christus victor, Christ victorious. And then he turns to you and me and he says to us, I did this all for you. I did this for you. And the, uh, the question, of course, is how can this be, Jesus? And the answer is because the Lord said, I will allow a substitute. I'll allow a substitute. You can pay for your sin yourself or you can take my son, Jesus. And Jesus says, I will take your sin on me and my sinless life can be given to you. And so do you know this, that if you've surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus, if you have said yes to him, if you have given him your life, do you know that not just in eternity in the future, but in this moment right now, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, when God the Father looks at you, he does not see your sin and your evil and all of your brokenness. When he looks at you, he sees a perfect sinless life because he sees you through the finished work of Jesus. Is that not amazing? It is absolutely amazing. This is the good news where your life has been filled with shame. Jesus says, I can restore the honor of being a beloved son, a beloved daughter, a child of God, where your life has been filled with fear. He says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I conquered every evil power. You have nothing to fear. I've set you free. When you feel the weight of guilt from your sin, Jesus says, I can wash you clean pure, white as the snow. That's good news. And the world cries out, can't be, can't be. Got to earn it. It's too good to be true. There's nobody who loves like that. That's outrageous. And that's exactly the point. Jesus looks at us and he says, I know it's a love that the world has never known. It's gracious. uh, It's abundant and it's free for the asking. Earlier this week, I was in a phone call with a friend, and we ended the call with a a word of prayer, and he used this phrase in his prayer. He said, oh, Lord, help me to never lose my astonishment at the gospel. 
That phrase just jumped out of his prayer and into my mind. I'm like, the astonishment. How long has it been since I've thought of the gospel and thought, I am absolutely astonished that God, you would do this for me, knowing who I am, knowing myself full well, knowing that you would give your son to freely take my sin and you give me in exchange his perfect. That is astonishing. You see, generous living is rooted in the gospel. So point three, I'll just be blunt, brief, but also blunt. If you're not a generous person, it's because you don't get the gospel. I really believe it, so I thought I might as well say it bluntly. If you're fearful, if you're anxious, if you're worrier about running out, you don't get the gospel. If you're miserly, greedy, driven to pump up your own image, you've got to buy things to make yourself look more important or powerful or beautiful, you don't get the gospel. If you have trouble releasing your grasp, your control over your time, your schedule, your money, your possessions, your children, your spouse, your talents, you don't get the gospel. Now, sure, you might be able to rattle off the main pieces of the story because you've heard them a few times, but the gospel hasn't yet taken root in your heart because generous living is rooted in the gospel. Let, Let me just highlight some things that many of you will have heard already. There is no question that the Bible calls us from cover to cover to generous living. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Abraham. And the Lord said to him, I'm going to give you more grandchildren. He had no kids at the time. I'm going to give you more grandchildren than you can count. I'm going to give you more money than you can carry. I'm going to give you more real estate than you could ever survey in a lifetime. But I'm not giving it to you to hoard it. I'm giving it to you that so through your family tree, every nation on the planet will be blessed. I'm giving it to you as a conduit. You are to be a channel, not a cul-de-sac that I hold on to what God gives me, but I'm a channel through which those blessings go out to the world. The Old Testament sacrificial system, think it through, all those ceremonial laws that we are no longer under. It was a huge culture of generosity. If you were a God-fearing Jew living under the law in the Old Testament, you were asked to take your income, and the first dime off of every dollar was goes, went to the temple, temple, the tabernacle. It went to care for the priests and the Levites to support the workers in the ministry. Then many people don't dig any deeper than that, 10% off the top. There's another 10% that follows. The Lord says, I want you to come to Jerusalem a couple times a year. I want you to come to the festival weeks, these feasts, and you need to travel, and you need to buy food and wine, and you need to buy sacrifices to bring the temple, and you need a place to stay. You might have to book a room at the inn if you're not going to Mennonite your way and stay with family. You're going to have to buy a hotel. How do you possibly pay for these festival weeks? Well, you set aside another 10% of your income in a savings account so you can go to the festival weeks. And every third year, I'm going to ask you to give another 10% of your income that will go specifically to the poor, to the widow, to the refugees, to the sojourners, so that there will never be a poor person in Israel. What an amazing plan. But you think it through and you add it all up, and it's like 23 to 27%, depending on how you do the math on it, every year going out of my pocket, and then add on top of it. The Lord then tells these people, and don't work about a third of the year. You're like, what? Like, I know the Sabbath day, one in seven, but every new moon was to be a day of worship, so that's 10 other days of the year. 
There are three or four festival weeks that are eight days long where they're told to do no work during those entire festival weeks. You go through the law in the Old Testament, it is like over a third of the year where they don't work. And you go, what was God doing? Don't work the whole year and give away a huge portion of your income. I think the Lord wanted them to know it wasn't on them. It's on him. He's the faithful one. You be faithful to me in this and watch. I'm going to open the floodgates of heaven over your life. It's not the context of our message, but it is certainly food for thought. When you get forward to Hebrews 13, it says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, that would be a good little proverb if you just put a period right there, just slap it on the fridge. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. How do you do that? The verse goes on, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. We sang it today. I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let any harm come to me. He is my provider. He is the one who said, I'm your shepherd. I will feed you. I will take you to waters. And when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm going to be with you to comfort you. He said to them, you know what? The Lord knows you need food. He knows you need clothing, but look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil or spin, and the Lord clothes them. They look much better than any of you. Look at the birds of the air. He feeds them, and aren't you worth more than a sparrow? If he loves the birds this much, certainly. So seek his kingdom, and he will take care of you. You push into the New Testament, you see this principle of generous living woven all the way through the Christian life. But how do you get there? Because Jesus pushed a lot of buttons when he said, the only way you get this life is to first give me yours. You got to lay yours down. You got to get you out of the way. You got to die to self. So Paul in Galatians 2 said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I am living and breathing, but I no longer live. The life I live now, I live because Christ lives through me. Give yourself away. And not just to the people that you know and love and people who can repay you, but also love your enemies and serve your neighbors and pray for people, even for people who persecute you. Pray for them too. So there can simply be no argument that the Bible calls us to generous living. But often a message just stops right there. And I've preached these kind of messages over the years. And right now there may be somebody in this room who's pretty ticked off at me right now. And you say, this is nothing more than another guilt trip. It's nothing more than another guilt trip. All the church wants is money. That is such a joke. <laughs> it's so much worse than that. Your money is the least of the worries. The Lord doesn't want your money. In fact, he doesn't need your money. He wants your entire life. He wants your husband. He wants your wife. He wants your children. He wants your educational degrees. He wants your vehicles. He wants your house. He wants your RRSPs. He wants your very breath. He wants your life. Money's the least of the worries. He says, come bring that little puny life to me. Lay it down. Pick it up. I will pour through you. You see, if we only said it's on us, this would be a crushing message because we can't do it. The weight of the world is too big. The needs of the world are too large. You know this to be true. Today, we could, every one of us, give away every single penny we have, and it would not make a dent in the world's needs. 
We, if we could figure out a way, some special recipe, some super Christian drug that said, I never have to sleep again for the rest of my life, and now I can work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year, and I'll do it all for the kingdom, even that would not be enough to meet the needs in the world. As I was driving out to Willingdon, I'm coming by the Italian Cultural Center there on Grandview, and they've got the sign-up for the blood donor clinic. Come in May, whatever the date is, and, and give your blood in. Oh, don't just take a unit. Drain me dry. I'm a generous person. It wouldn't meet the needs of the world. And the weight of the world would soon crush us. And that generous spirit within it that does indeed want to come out is overwhelmed. And it's like, oh God, I want to be generous with my time and my possessions and my money. I want to be used by you to be a blessing. But Father, and this is the voice we never tell anybody else this, but when we're privately talking to that person in the mirror, it's like, what about me? There's days I just, like honestly, I just feel a little selfish. What's in it for me, Lord? What about my needs? I'm anxious. I'm fearful. I'm not sure what tomorrow holds. Honestly, I'm a little afraid I'm going to run out. And it feels like I just want to get back in my cocoon where it's comfortable and forget about the big bad world. And it's here in this moment that the gospel both breaks us and then remakes us. The gospel breaks us And then it remakes us. As we stare into the face of Jesus, that one who was rich and yet for our sake who became poor, who took on human nature, who laid his life down and literally gave it all so that we might be right with the Father. And in a moment of reflection, the penny drops and I breathe a sigh of relief when I see that what the gospel is really saying is I don't have to do this. In fact, I can't do this. I am not the savior of the world and neither are you. But thanks be to God that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done. And as my life is hidden in him, I'm free to live a generous life that I could never live on my own. Because it's not my life anymore. It's his. I gave it to him. I took this tiny, insignificant life of mine. We're not that much. Do you realize that? There's 7 billion on the people on the planet. Nobody knows your name. All those Facebook friends are not really your friends. No, they are, but... Five generations from now, most people are never going to remember even our names. How many of you know the names of your great-great-great-grandparents? We, we, a few, but most of us have forgotten even our own family tree. We live insignificant lives, but the Lord says, take that little life and lay it at my feet. With your limited time, your limited resources, your long list of obligations, your tight schedule, and you say, Jesus, it's not much. This little life of mine is not very much, but like that little boy who brought the fish and the loaves to Jesus and he multiplied them, the Lord smiles in that moment because he knows he has us exactly where he wants us to be. Because he's like, you are right now where heaven can use you. Now all of the resources of heaven can be taken and resourced through this open vessel. I think it's exactly what we read earlier when it says they gave beyond their ability. Because the Lord enabled them. In 2 Corinthians 5, you you get the key to it. They first gave themselves first to the Lord. And then verse 9 reminds us, because of the grace of our Lord Jesus. Okay, i got to land it. got to land it. This goes so, so far beyond money. 
Generosity is a concept of living. It applies to us individually. When we get the gospel, when we really see and understand what Jesus did, we can't help but be generous, gracious, winsome people. Christians should be the most generous people on the planet. When people think of Christianity in general and when they think of individual Christians, they know they should think of those people. They are the most winsome people that I know. There's an old chorus. I don't know if you seen, many of you would know it. We sang it when I was a kid. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The more that I love him, more love he bestows. Each day is like heaven. My heart overflows. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. I think that song should also be sung this way. The longer I serve him, the sweeter I grow. Because the more I know of him, the more winsome, the more gracious, the more grateful, the more giving that I become. Not out of guilt, not out of duty, but out of a a response to love. And oh to God that his people would grasp this concept of generous living. And corporately, it applies to us as church families. And I've been challenging Willenden this whole weekend. You're a, a church that's been blessed. Continue to use your resources to bless others across the world, across the nation. J.D. Greer, a pastor in South Carolina, or North Carolina, asked this question. What if we changed our measure of success as churches? What if we didn't measure success by our seating capacity? How many people show up at our weekend services? What if we measured our success by our sending capacity? How many people we have trained up and sent out into the mission field? How many workers? How many churches have been planted? 58 years ago, God birthed a new congregation called Willingdon Church out of the generosity of the Vancouver Mennonite Brethren Church being willing to send 116 members to come start this baby. What if Willingdon every year in the next five, ten years would just say, we're just going to keep hiving off 116 at a time. We just got a sign-up list out in the foyer every week, just keep signing it up, and as soon as we get to 116, boop, out the door, there you go. Send them off generously, go start another faith community. What a wonderful, generous thing. You might have heard the old adage, you can't outgive God. And whether you're talking about your finances or generously sending people away, His promise is this, my God will supply all your needs. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory through Christ Jesus. So I want to pray a blessing in your life. Can we stand together? I want to pray with you and for you that God would call out that generous person in your heart. And I also want to pray for people who maybe you came in today, and I know you did, and you're going, I need in on this. And maybe you never heard it said the way I said it today that there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. Maybe you've never understood that. Maybe you've been thinking there's something. In fact, maybe you even came to church today thinking, well, maybe I can get in on God's good books by showing up at a church service. Those are good things, but I need to tell you those things don't make you right with God. What makes you right with God was finished 2,000 years ago. When Jesus Christ walked away from a tomb gloriously alive and said, everything that needs to be done has been finished. And the response simply has to be, yes, Lord, I need that. I want that. And I'm willing to say, yes, I'm willing to lay my life down. I'll give my life to you, and I'm asking you to pick my life up and give me a new life in exchange. And if you're here today and that's what you want, just pray with me as we say yes to Jesus. So, Lord Jesus, I pray for the men and women in this room. I pray first for those who have not yet sealed their faith in you, and maybe it's because they haven't heard the message clearly or they've been thinking about it, praying about it, they've been pondering it, 
But even today, they would say, you know what, I need this. There's shame in my life that I want to have the honor of being a dearly loved son and daughter of God. There's fear in my life. I need that wiped away and conquered. There's guilt in my life. I know my sin very well. I need to be clean. I need to be forgiven. And they don't know how to get there. And they're working and they're striving and they're praying and they're giving. And Jesus, you simply say, you know what? I've already done all the work. I finished it. I've got a free gift for you. It's a sinless, perfect life. It's my life, the life of Jesus. Just give me your life. Let's do an exchange here. You hand me yours. I'll hand you mine. And Lord, I pray that in this room right now, in this moment, that there will be dozens and dozens of men and women who are saying yes to you right now. I need that gift, Lord. I need Jesus' life, and I'll give you mine in exchange. Please take it. It's insignificant. It's little. It's broken. But if you can take it, now live your life through me. And then, Lord, I pray for the majority in this room that I know have known you for years and probably some for decades and decades. And I pray that anew and afresh in this day that we would be astonished by the gospel. That as we crawl out of bed every day before our feet even hit the floor, that we would be reminded, oh God, here I stand in need of your grace and your mercy today. And thank you that it was finished. Thank you that you saved me, past tense, complete, it was done. Thank you that you are saving me, present tense, the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit sanctifying me. And thank you that the promise is one day it will be culminated. I will be saved when I stand in your presence with millions upon millions, lifting the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that finished work. May I never stop being astonished by it. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.